Hello and welcome to the third season of Tea and Old Books. That's right, we are now on to the third season, which means we are on to our third book. My name is Jenny and every day through the Spanish lockdown I am reading aloud an old book whilst drinking a variety of teas. Stay tuned to find out what this season's book is going to be. Today is day 47 of the Spanish lockdown and I am back and ready to read a new book. Now, if you were listening to the last season, you may have spotted that there's been a bit of a pause between me finishing The Dead Secret and starting this new book. Now, I did commit to reading every single day, but I had already broken that a while ago, so I did again and I took a break of two days in which to decide on a new book. Which book? A better book, a more exciting book. Now, if you listened to the last season, you will remember that I was not a fan of The Dead Secret. In the second season, we read The Dead Secret by Wilkie Collins, and that book crushed my spirit to such an extent that I actually, at one point, stopped reading it and just quickly summarised various chapters so I could skip to the end and stop reading it. It's not that there's anything particularly wrong with that book, and in my show notes I'll discuss more about, about The Dead Secret. It's just that all of the action was so far removed and everyone kept summarising everything so much that everything took so long to happen that I just, by the end, I would have just been relieved if they had just all died in a giant fire. That would have been great, but no. But it's behind us. We are moving on and I have a new book. I am very excited by this book. Now, my previous books were maybe unknown books in, in this, this current era of ours. Now, they weren't unknown in their time. The Circular Staircase was very famous in the beginning of the 20th century. We've kind of forgotten about it now, but still at the time it was famous. And Wilkie Collins is a very famous Victorian writer, not for The Dead Secret, it must be said, but for his other books like The Moonstone and The Lady in White. Wait, The Woman in White. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now today's book is by well, it's a, it's a well-known book, it's a famous book. It often makes its way into those lists you see of like 100 books to read before you die and 1,000 books to impress your friends at dinner parties with. You know, those kinds of lists. The last one, I'm not sure that exists, but it should exist. So this book often appears on those kinds of lists. It's one that I actually thought I'd already read, but it turns out I haven't read it. I watched one of the many films about it and for example it's very well known for example I went to a local local to Spain aquarium a few months ago you know a few months ago when we were allowed to be outside and in that aquarium there's a whole room dedicated to this book now can you guess what it is so it's a 19th century novel you could theme an aquarium around it it's science fiction I'm gonna pause 
Da, 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 da. Have you guessed? That's right. In season three of TNO Books, we are reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Ooh, applause. I'm very excited about this book. I think partly because I really miss going to the sea. So I live in Barcelona, very close to the beach, maybe, well, how far is it? Like five minutes walk away. It's like one or two blocks away. And I haven't been able to go there for 47 days. And I really miss it. I have an old octopus that I like to watch. And so I'm, I'm craving being in the sea and seeing sea creatures, which I think 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is going to give us that sense. This is what I'm hoping. Now, before I get into it, so what I'm going to do is I am going to do a little intro to the book, a little intro to the writer, and I'm going to talk about my tea. I will talk about my tea first because I want to drink it. I'm quite thirsty. It's a weird day today. It's sort of warm and muggy, but windy and cloudy at the same time. Okay, so I'm going to drink some tea. And then talk about it. So the tea that I'm drinking today is a organic green tea. It is made by Clipper Teas, and this is one of the teas that if you listen to the last season, I spoke about how my aunt had sent me some tea bags from the UK, and this is one of the teas that she sent me. So it's a little, I have one tea bag, I'm drinking it today, and it's got some information on the back. So it says it's natural, fair, and delicious. It's organic green tea, a crisp, flavorful and highly refreshing green tea with a clean finish and welcoming golden green liquor. Liquor? That's weird. It says find Clipper in all good retailers. Well, I guess that Spain doesn't have any good retailers because you can't buy this brand of tea here. Um, so I'm looking at the tea and yeah, I guess it is kind of golden actually. Like it's sort of yellowishy green. It's quite nice and refreshing. It's got on the front as well, it's fair trade and it's soil association organic, which yeah, is good. It means that it's, it's living up to its claims. All right, so 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is written by Jules Verne. I'm sure you know this. So Jules Verne is famous for having written um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but also Around the World in 80 Days and Journey to the Centre of the Earth. All fantastic. Jules Verne is a French writer. And this book is a science fiction adventure novel. It was serialised between March 1869 and June 1870, fortnightly in, and now I'm going to try and read some French, in Magazine d'Education et de Recation. I think I said that very Spanish. <laughs> I'm sorry, like I speak Spanish, don't speak French, so I pronounce that very Spanish. But that's the name of the magazine. Do you notice the theme here with these 19th century novels and early 20th century novels is that they all seem to have been serialised in magazines before they're published as novels. So 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was published in French as a novel in 1870, once the run of it being in the magazine was over. I also forgot to read out its whole title, actually. So it's always referred to as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's just what I thought the title was. But the full title is actually 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, A World Tour Underwater. Ooh. 
Now, obviously, I'm reading the English translation. I don't have any information about who translated this book. So again, this is a book that I have gotten from Project Gutenberg, which is a really good resource for getting copies of books that are out of copyright. It's fantastic. And it's all staffed by volunteers. Now, the title of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea refers to the distance traveled under various different seas. So it's not the depth. So I always thought it was that's how deep they go in the story, 20,000 Leagues. But no. Now, 20,000 Leagues is also about 80,000 kilometers. And it's, that length is nearly twice the circumference of the Earth. So that's what Jules Verne is basing it on. Like They go around the whole world, kind of twice, zigzagging through all the different seas. So it's not depth, it's the number of seas. That's a mistranslation, the title in English. So in French, if you translate it properly, it should be seas, not sea. So it should be the plural of sea. 20,000 leagues under the seas, not just one sea. And that's why it makes it sound like it's depth. So I'm not going to talk any more about the book, even though probably you know roughly what it's about, because I don't want to give away the spoilers. So sort of the key, key parts and the sort of key points of interest for why I've picked this book, I will come back to when we come across them, because I don't want to spoil the surprise. I've not read this, but I do know roughly, rough, very roughly, what's going to happen. Now, let's talk very briefly about Jules Verne. So Jules Verne is French. Um, he wrote Journey to the Centre of the Earth in 1864, Around the World in 80 Days in 1873. Now he's a novelist and playwright, and these novels are what he's most famous for in the Anglophone world anyway. In the Anglophone world, he's often seen as a children's writer, due mainly to the translations being a bit rubbish. <laughs> this is, I've just been looking this up on Wikipedia. This is what Wikipedia tells me. Um, in France, he had a wide influence on the literary avant-garde and on surrealism, which is intriguing and something that I hadn't heard about before, so I'm going to be looking into that more later. He is the second most translated author in the world since 1979. I think it's interesting, because I, I guess author, not, not book. I was thinking about the Bible, but author. And so he's sort of, he's second, and he's sometimes bested by Agatha Christie, and sometimes bested by Shakespeare, which is a really amusing mixture of people to be widely translated. And he's, Jules Verne is often called the father of science fiction. Now, H.G. Wells is also often called this, so I guess we can have a small debate later on who is the real father of science fiction. But Jules Verne is definitely there somewhere, right? So this is widely recognized as being a science fiction novel. We won't talk about why yet. We can talk about why later. Yes, when we get started. So let us start. I'm going to drink some more of my tea and then we can start reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I'm already, I'm excited, very excited. Okay. <clears throat> 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, by Jules Verne, Part 1. Chapter 1. A Shifting Reef. The year 1866 was signalised by a remarkable incident, 
a mysterious and puzzling phenomenon which doubtless no one has yet forgotten. Not to mention rumours which agitated the maritime population and excited the public mind. Even in the interior of continents, seafaring men were particularly excited. Merchants, common sailors, captains of vessels, skippers, both of Europe and America, naval officers of all countries, and the governments of several states on the two continents were deeply interested in the matter. For some time past, vessels had been met by an enormous thing, a long object, spindle-shaped, occasionally phosphorescent, and infinitely larger and more rapid in its movements than a whale. The facts relating to this apparition, entered in various logbooks, agreed in most respects as to the shape of the object or creature in question. The untiring rapidity of its movements, its surprising power of locomotion, and the peculiar life with which it seemed endowed. If it was a whale, it surpassed in size all those hitherto classified in science. Taking into consideration the mean of observations made at diverse times, rejecting the timid estimate of those who assigned to this object a length of 200 feet, equally with the exaggerated opinions which set it down as a mile in width and three in length, we might fairly conclude that this mysterious being surpassed greatly all dimensions admitted by the learned ones of the day, if it existed at all. And that it did exist was an undeniable fact, and with the tendency which disposes the human mind in favour of the marvellous, we can understand the excitement produced in the entire world by this supernatural apparition. As to classing it in the list of fables, the idea was out of the question. On the 20th of July, 1866, the steamer Governor Higginson of the Calcutta and Burnock Steam Navigation Company had met this moving mass five miles off the east coast of Australia. Captain Baker thought at first that he was in the presence of an unknown sandbank. He even prepared to determine its exact position when two columns of water projected by the mysterious object shot with a hissing noise a hundred and fifty feet into the air. Now, unless the sandbank had been submitted to the intermittent eruption of a geyser, the Governor Higginson had to do neither more nor less than with an aquatic mammal, unknown till then, which threw up from its blowholes columns of water mixed with air and vapour. Similar facts were observed on the 23rd of July in the same year in the Pacific Ocean by the Columbus of the West India and Pacific Steam Navigation Company. But this extraordinary creature could transport itself from one place to another with surprising velocity as in an interval of three days the Governor Higginson and the Columbus had observed it at two different points of the chart separated by a distance of more than 700 nautical leagues. Fifteen days later, 2,000 miles farther off, the Helvetia of the Colombe Nationale and the Shannon of the Royal Mail Steamship Company, sailing to windward in that portion of the Atlantic lying between the United States and Europe, 
respectfully signalled the monster to each other in 42 degrees 15 nat lat and 60 degrees 35 w long. In these simultaneous observations, they thought themselves justified in estimating the minimum length of the mammal at more than 350 feet, as the Shannon and Helvetia were of smaller dimensions than it, though they measured 300 feet overall. Now, the largest whales, those which frequent those parts of the sea around Alatean, Kulmak and Ungaiak Islands, have never exceeded the length of 60 yards, if they attain that. In every place of great resort, the monster was the fashion. They sang of it in the cafes, ridiculed it in the papers, and represented it on the stage. All kinds of stories were circulated regarding it. There appeared in the papers caricatures of every gigantic and imaginary creature, from the white whale, the terrible Moby Dick of sub-Arctic regions, to the immense kraken whose tentacles could entangle a ship of 500 tons and hurry it into the abyss of the ocean. The legends of ancient times were even revived. Then burst forth the unending argument between the believers and the unbelievers in the societies of the wise and the scientific journals. The question of the monster inflamed all minds. Editors of scientific journals quarrelling with believers in the supernatural spilled seas of ink during this memorable campaign, some even drawing blood, for from the sea serpent they came to direct personalities. During the first months of the year 1867, the question seemed buried, never to revive, when new facts were brought before the public. It was then no longer a scientific problem to be solved, but a real danger seriously to be avoided. The question took quite another shape. The monster became a small island, a rock, a reef, but a reef of indefinite and shifting proportions. On the 5th of March, 1867, the Moravian of the Montreal Ocean Company, finding herself during the night in 27 degrees 30 lat and 72 degrees 15 long, struck on her starboard quarter a rock, marked in no chart for that part of the sea. Under the combined efforts of the wind and its 400 horsepower, it was going at the rate of 13 knots. Had it not been for the superior strength of the hull of the Moravian, she would have been broken by the shock and gone down with 237 passengers she was bringing home from Canada. The accident happened about 5 o'clock in the morning as the day was breaking. The officers of the quarter deck hurried to the after part of the vessel. They examined the sea with most careful attention. They saw nothing but a strong eddy about three cables length distant, as if the surface had been violently agitated. The bearings of the place were taken exactly, and the Moravian continued its route without apparent damage. Had it struck on a submerged rock, or on an enormous wreck? They could not tell, but on examination of the ship's bottom when undergoing repairs, it was found that part of her keel was broken. This fact, so grave in itself, might perhaps have been forgotten, like many others, if three weeks after it had not been re-enacted under similar circumstances. But thanks to the nationality of the victim of the shock, thanks to the reputation of the company to which the vessel belonged, 
the circumstance became extensively circulated. The 13th of April, 1867, the sea being beautiful, the breeze favourable, the Scotia of the Cunard Company's line found herself in 15 degrees 12 long and 45 degrees 37 lat. She was going at the speed of 13 knots and a half. At 17 minutes past four in the afternoon, whilst the passengers were assembled at lunch in the great saloon, a slight shock was felt on the hull of the Scotia, on her quarter, a little after the port paddle. The Scotia had not struck, but she had been struck, and seemingly by something rather sharp and penetrating than blunt. The shock had been so slight that no one had been alarmed, had it not been for the shouts of the carpenter's watch who rushed onto the bridge, exclaiming, We are sinking! We are sinking! At first the passengers were much frightened, but Captain Anderson hastened to reassure them. The danger could not be imminent. The Scotia, divided into seven compartments by strong partitions, could brave with impunity any leak. Captain Anderson went down immediately into the hold. He found that the sea was pouring into the fifth compartment, and the rapidity of the influx proved that the force of the water was considerable. Fortunately, this compartment did not hold the boilers, or the fires would have been immediately extinguished. Captain Anderson ordered the engines to be stopped at once, and one of the men went down to ascertain the extent of the injury. Some minutes afterwards, they discovered the existence of a large hole, two yards in diameter, in the ship's bottom. Such a leak could not be stopped, and the Scotia, her paddles half-submerged, was obliged to continue her course. She was then 300 miles from Cape Clear, and after three days' delay, which caused great uneasiness in Liverpool, she entered the basin of the company. The engineers visited the Scotia, which was put in dry dock. They could scarcely believe it possible. At two yards and a half below watermark was a regular rent, in the form of an isosceles triangle. The broken place in the iron plates was, not, was so perfectly defined that it could not have been more neatly done by a punch. It was clear then that the instrument producing the perforation was not of a common stamp, and after having been driven with prodigious strength and piercing an iron plate one and three-eighths inches thick, had withdrawn itself by a backward motion. Such was the last fact which resulted in exciting once more the torrent of public opinion. From this moment, all unlucky casualties which could not be otherwise accounted for were put down to the monster. Upon this imaginary creature rested the responsibility of all these shipwrecks, which unfortunately were considerable, for of 3,000 ships whose loss was annually recorded at Lloyd's, the number of sailing and steamships supposed to be totally lost from the absence of all news, amounted to not less than 200. Now it was the monster who justly or unjustly was accused of their disappearance, and thanks to it, communication between the different continents became more and more dangerous. The public demanded sharply that the seas should at any price be relieved from this formidable cetacean. Ooh, it's the end of the chapter. And strangely, cetacean there has a footnote, number one, which just says, member of the whale family. (laughs) 
Ooh, that's exciting. Okay, so what's happened so far? We've got a mysterious monster has been roaming the deep seas and it's been attacking ships and punching holes in them that are like perfect triangles. So I, I don't think this is going to be an animal. I think this has to be man-made, man surely. It's some kind of like underwater ship, some kind of early submarine that's going around stabbing ships in the hole or a fantastical monster. Ooh, I'm excited. That was really good. That was really fun. So I'm already feeling like about a thousand times better about my, my choice of book. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this book. And I think because the chapters are shorter, I think we're going to be able to do what we did in the first series and read two chapters at a time. I'm not going to do that now because otherwise I think I'd run on too long because I had the introduction in this episode. But I think tomorrow's episode we'll read two chapters. So the next chapter, chapter two, is called Pro and Con. So I guess we'll learn more about the monster in that chapter. But hmm, I'm loving it so far. Anything to do with a mysterious monster in the sea, and I, I am for it. That's a plot point that I am well behind. So I'm going to stop reading, but I'm feeling good about this. I'm looking forward to tomorrow when we can read more find out about the monster yes okay i'm going to stop i wish you all the best have a good evening and we will continue on tomorrow with reading Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea by jules verne